Hello, I'm Emily Hawthorne, a Middle East and North Africa analyst at Stratfor, a RAIN company. This podcast is brought to you by Stratfor Worldview, RAIN's premier digital publication for objective geopolitical intelligence and analyses. Sign up for the free Stratfor newsletter at worldview.stratfor.com. who believed in Brexit fall into that most fundamental error of believing that geography is destiny. The idea that Britain has left Europe in a geopolitical sense is just sort of fanciful. Welcome to Baker's Dozen, a podcast series of monthly conversations about geopolitics from Stratfor, a rain company. I'm your host, Roger Baker. Brexit has challenged the European Union's narrative of deeper integration as a future model of globalism. It's reawoken tensions within the United Kingdom, renewed calls for Scottish independence, and revived the Irish question. At the same time, there remain unanswered questions on the economic impact on both sides of the channel. Joining me to discuss the geopolitics of the United Kingdom is Jeff Sloan, an associate professor at the University of Reading and the UK coordinator of the Mackinder Forum. Thank you for joining me today. Well, it's, it's a real pleasure, Roger, to uh, to be here, and I'm always uh, delighted to uh, interact with anything that uh, Stratford is doing. Jeff, when we look at uh, you know the, this issue that we we've been talking about for a little while, um, looking at the the United Kingdom, we have this moment now where the United Kingdom is pulled out of the European Union, where it's trying to potentially redefine itself once again as as an independent unit uh, from Europe. But it's uh, not really uh, able to leave the European space. The United Kingdom sits in a particular geography. It has a long history of relations with the continent. That history has shaped the way in which we've seen uh, the United Kingdom develop uh, over time. How should we look at this moment in the evolution of, of uh, UK geopolitics? I think the best way to look at it uh, is to reflect on uh, and use um, the ideas of, of Sir Halford Mackinder. And uh, Sir Halford Mackinder, uh, as you know, Roger, but perhaps uh, many of your, uh, your listeners do not know, was, of course, the great founder of what is now regarded as, as the classical school of, of geopolitics. And in uh, 1902, a long time ago, he published a, a book that was titled Britain and the British Seas. And I think it was one of his, it's often forgotten, but I, I think it's one of his sort of seminal uh, texts. And it articulated the nature of the, uh, the geopolitical relationship between British Isles and Europe. And I think his analysis has, has great relevance for uh, Brexit and what has happened. Because uh, for Mackinder, the, the geographical starting point of relationship was the southeast coast of England. Uh, and this, is, this was an area which he said was, was proximate to and opposite what he called the, ling the linguistic frontier of Europe. Okay. Now, at this frontier, there was a confluence between what he described as, and it's it's very much in the the tone of his era, the Teutonic and the Romance peoples. 
Okay, and, and these two streams of influence had a geographical expression, and that was the, 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 the key point in the form of the Rhine River, and of course the River Seine and its estuary. And uniquely, he argued, these two influences had shaped Britain uh, to the Teutonic, or as he called it, the Easterling or the Norseman. He maintained that England owes her civil institutions uh, and her language. And to the people, I suppose, of the, um, the, the West and the South, her traditions of Christianity and her um, uh, scholarship. Uh, and he identified, I suppose, this represents what I, I think could be described as a geographical pattern of political history. And his key point was that Britain is, because of the southeast of England being opposite this linguistic frontier, and the influences, the two influences having shaped uh, uh, Britain, he put forward the proposition that Britain is is part of Europe, but not in it. Now, this stands in stark contrast to two things. One is that uh, the, the referendum campaign of 2016, there was a failure on both sides, those that wanted to remain and those wanted to, to leave, to articulate and understand that geopolitical relationship. The Brexiteers, of course, said that somehow we, we can leave Europe. And you can see that it's it's found a kind of a rather weird expression in our current Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, because he has claimed that, that Britain is a coastal state, which is even more bizarre and even more surreal and even more divorced from the geopolitical reality. So the idea, I think, that that Britain has left Europe uh, in a geopolitical sense is is just sort of fanciful, and um, I think it would not be unrealistic, of course, to acknowledge that much has changed in the relationship between Britain and Europe uh, since 1902. And of course, given the, the, the significance of the single market for, for the British economy, I think if Mackinder were alive today, he would have acknowledged that the pertinence of, of the geopolitical realities. But, but I think the, the key thing is that, again, um, the current British Prime Minister has, to has yet to demonstrate that he understands the geopolitical relationship between Britain and Europe. Because it has at its heart, I think, two enduring qualities that are very difficult to align, and that is mutability and paradox. Okay, I, you've, I've talked about the, parity, the paradox that Britain is, is, is part of Europe, but not in it, because it's opposite this linguistic frontier. And, it's, and British society is a product of these two influences. Uh, the the Teutonic and the Romance, as Kinder um, as McKinder call them, but but also I think if you look back into Britain's history, in terms of the mutability, it really wasn't until the, the Tudor period that the English Channel became uh, an effective uh, strategic boundary, and this is one of the great things about the the rather sort of facile arguments of, of the people who believed in Brexit that somehow. The English Channel predestined that, that Britain uh, should leave uh, the European Union because they fall into that most fundamental error of believing that geography is destiny.
And that is a very dangerous uh, assumption uh, to make. So if I can perhaps illustrate this, this point, the Tudor period, you know, it was only then that the English Channel became a, an effective sort of strategic boundary. Before then, uh, Mackinder argued uh, that London was more closely uh, connected uh, on the on the, the tideways, as he put it, with with Paris, Flanders, the Hanseatic ports, than to the rest of the British Isles, uh, Scotland, Ireland, or Wales. So that I think in itself is an interesting sort of point that for a long period of time, England, and one has to be very specific here about this area of the, of the British Isles, Mackinder is arguing was was more closely connected with Paris. Uh, Flanders, uh, the Hanseatic uh, ports, than other bits of the British Isles, Scotland, Wales, or, or Ireland. So that I think illustrates this this mutability uh, and paradox. When we look at this, um, then you know, for particularly on on our side of the pond over here in, in America, you know, the the concepts of the way in which we look at uh, British history and the relationship between uh, the UK and Europe. Um, we look at things like, uh, you know, uh, Churchill and saying every, every, you know, having having that moat, right, the ability to be separate. Um, yes. We look at the concepts that Americans have taken in strategic thought of maritime nations, uh, Mahan studying the British experience and talking about that, that maritime capacity uh, as being such a strong component of, of the way in which uh, national power exerts itself internationally. Um, but then we can also look at the idea, you know, as you're raising, um, maritime space is not merely a barrier; it's a a path of communication, right? If you if and if you look at the orientation of uh, the 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 river system in in the UK, you look at where London sits. Um, it looks at Europe more than it looks at other parts of the British Isles. Yes, no, no. I, I think that's a very good good point, Roger. And, and in fact, I would I would expand that and, and actually cite uh, a, another um, a political geographer, a, a Dutch political geographer, who perhaps illustrates th this point e even stronger, and particularly in relation to relations uh, inside the British Isles and, of course, uh, across the continent. But um, this this Dutch political geographer was called uh, called Hesslinger, uh, and he he put forward, I think three propositions uh, about the very subject that you brought up. He was of the opinion that that frontier are boundaries that have no relation to conspicuous natural barriers are not necessarily uh, unworkable and unsatisfactory boundaries. The second point he puts across, which comes back directly to what you said, is that he challenges the common assumption that pertain to sea boundaries. That is that they are natural boundaries which separate political entities. He argued that in actual fact the sea brings people together, uh, and he he does this, for instance, um, with respect to the the, the whole argument about um, uh, Irish independence and, and Irish republicanism, because he maintains uh, that contacts uh, across the Irish Sea uh, are more numerous and more in, uh, intensive. Uh, than those across the border uh, between Northern Ireland uh, and the Irish Republic. And I think the third point, actually, he builds on the work of an American political geographer, which people don't, people don't talk about anymore, but really, 
called Richard Hartshorn. Uh, and the thesis that Hartshorn puts forward it, it based on human associations. And that, it, in fact, it, it is these associations that result in regions having certain ties with one another, which do not conform to natural boundaries or the configuration of physical geography. Uh, and these associations have a number of characteristics. So, for instance, you can have uh, cultural uh, associations. Uh, between certain certain lo locations, the same cultural area. There are socioeconomic associations. These can be described as communications of both people and, and goods. It includes, of course, transport, communication links, uh, patterns of trade. And then the final type of association could be described as, uh, as being historical, more specifically memories and concepts uh, derived from a common past. And these historical associations have less to do with, with chronological time and historical record and more to do with people's kind of perception of memories of the past. These associations, I think, are, are very important because, again, it casts a light on the fact that but Britain has, if you, if you look at those associations that you talked about, Britain has, has a long history, as you said, Roger, right at the very beginning with Europe. It certainly has got socioeconomic associations. And as Mackinder pointed out way back at identity, there certainly are cultural associations. So once you start to take a more sort of nuanced geopolitical analysis, the the facile arguments of, of British Brexiteers are, are, are really shown to, to, to be the kind of the poison chalice that they are. Hold that thought a moment. We'll be right back. Stratfor Worldview is Rain's premier geopolitical publication and a go-to source for diplomats, businesses, professionals, and individuals around the world. The real-time challenges of living in an increasingly interconnected world have rarely been on display as clearly as they have over the past year. Together, Stratfor and Rain provide tools and intelligence to help you efficiently stay ahead of emerging risks, identify opportunities, and get a more complete view of the world. If you like what you heard today and would like to know more about Stratfor Worldview, consider signing up for our free newsletter. You can find details at worldview.stratfor.com. That's worldview.stratfor.com. Now, let's get back to the interview. Well, as we as we look at these sets of relationships, you know, there's the relationship with the continent. And in the past, it's also had very clear military uh, and strategic connotations, um, concepts of balance of power and things of that sort to, to both protect uh, Britain and to find ways to manage the way in which the continent operates or works as a, as a threat. But there's also the relationship with Ireland. And clearly the Irish question um, came up both in the, you know, in the, the discussions on how to regularize trade post-Brexit, because, of course, Ireland remains in the European Union, Northern Ireland remains in the United Kingdom. How has that uh, relationship between Ireland and the, the United Kingdom changed over time? And how does that relationship balance between the relationship with the continent? You can go right back to, uh, I suppose, the 16th century, and uh, there was a kind of a, a maxim once I, I came across from some Spanish officers, which went along the following lines, that, that he 
who England will win, uh, let him in Ireland begin. Okay, so if you look at it in, in, a, in a kind of a geostrategic sense, of course, Ireland's importance um, uh, can be traced back over uh, uh, to m many, many centuries. And there was always a sense that if Britain's continental enemies got a foothold in Ireland, it, it would undermine and weaken Britain and make it very, very vulnerable. And of course, one of the things that, that accentuated this, and you can see it, for instance, is particularly in the Second World War, uh, with the uh, development of the disruptive technology of the U-boat. If it hadn't have been for, for bases in, in Northern Ireland, uh, during the Second World War, plus the fact that um, uh, Frank, President Franklin Roosevelt had the courage to secretly order the building of two U.S. naval bases almost uh, six months before the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. In June 1941, there was a, a flying boat base, which was uh, American started to construct in Loch Erne, and a naval base in Londonderry. And in many respects, that prevented sort of disaster. But, but of course, what the real problem was is that because of Irish neutrality and the, and the, the, sim the sympathy, I would say, of um, the Irish government to, to, to Nazi Germany, don't forget that you have to, uh, perhaps you're, 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 um, in America people forget this, but De Valera, who was the Irish prime minister, um, as the war came to an end in Europe and the horrors of the Nazi death camps were opened up, uh, Auschwitz, Buchenwald, Dachau, uh, de Valera went along to the, the German embassy in Dublin uh, and signed a condolence book um, expressing sympathy for the death of Adolf Hitler. Uh, and you really have to, you, today when we think about that, you know, we find that absolutely shocking given that we know about the murderous Nazi sort of regime. So there's one dimension of it. The second thing to kind of bring it up to the, um, the present, one of the things that has always uh, bedeviled, I think, Anglo-Irish relations from 1922 is this concept that uh, because Ireland is geographically an island, it, it is uh, predetermined that it should be united. Again, we come back to this same dangerous uh, logic of thinking that um, geography is, is political destiny. And, and one of the, the real problems has been since, um, certainly since 1969 uh, and the start of the conflict in Northern Ireland, is that successive British governments really have refused to uh, counter or to take on that particular assumption and have forgotten those those kind of propositions or that articulated by, by, by people like Hesslinger. So, for instance, you have a conservative government when the, Peter Brook, who was the Northern Ireland Secretary of State, saying that uh, Britain had no selfish uh, strategic or economic interests in, in Northern Ireland. So it's, it's a bit like an American president, Roger, if you can imagine this, announcing from the White House that the United States, to placate Mexico, that the United States had no selfish strategic or economic interests in Texas, Arizona, and New Mexico. 
it, it would be inconceivable. But I think also the other point that I would make in terms of, of understanding the relationships is that, again, we, we kind of come back to, to Hesslinger because he's one of the few people who have written about this, is that the best way to understand the, the relationships within the British Isles is to look at the, the, the two uh, east-west axes. So his argument was that the current land boundary of the United Kingdom that separates Northern Ireland off from the Irish Republic uh, actually is a very pertinent one because it separates off uh, the the anglicised part of uh, Ireland, which is the southern bit, although perhaps many Irish Republicans would find it very difficult to acknowledge that, and the Scottishized bit. And just to give you a few examples of this, how, how this is, has expressed itself and these relationships go back, um, just prior to... Um, the uh, the arrival of of covid in the united kingdom the the busiest air route in the british isles uh wasn't the one between london and edinburgh or london and manchester or london and birmingham or london and cardiff it is the one between london and dublin so that that i think it shows you that 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 route though the technology has changed that it's that east west sort of axis and, and mckinder wrote about this uh, quite extensively and then if you if you go back to your point about a a, a trade barrier up the irish sea what, one of the things which again uh, the johnson government uh, either ignored or because he wanted to appeal to his electorate in england that he had got Brexit done. Northern Ireland does about nine billion pounds worth of trade with the rest of the United Kingdom per year. Okay. And does only two billion pounds of trade with the Irish Republic. So the, 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 the economy in Northern Ireland has been locked into and integrated with the economy in the rest of the United Kingdom uh, for many, many years. And uh, Johnson, the Johnson uh, government's decision uh, to uh, agree to the the weaponize, weaponization of the European Union uh, and of course the Irish government to the land boundary between the United Kingdom and the Irish Republic has meant that it is going to cause a huge amount of uh, economic damage uh, in Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland, of course, is perhaps one of the poorest parts of the United Kingdom, and it's going to become uh, a lot poorer. Well, Jeff, I, I think there's probably about a dozen other t aspects of this that we can we can go into. We're we're pushing time here, but a, a few things I'd like to bring us back to. One, yeah. the idea that geography is non-dictatorial. Yes, um, it creates opportunities, it creates challenges, but it's the interaction of humanity with geography that really defines things. And that that relationship, for example, as you're laying out between Northern Ireland and Britain versus Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland, the rest of Ireland is an interesting one to explore further uh, at another time. Um, and the the other would be these these ideas of uh, the location does have an impact. The, the United Kingdom cannot simply isolate itself uh, from Europe. It quite frankly never has in history. But as you noted, there is an element of the way in which people and societies choose to think about history and about their stories that can allow them to to reshape which parts they conceive as most important, right? The, uh, the, the, 
the glory days of of the 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 British Empire and and their capabilities alone and independent, whether they were alone and independent or not. Um, the the same types of ideas are shaping, I think, what we're seeing around the world in some of these resurgences of nationalism uh, and things that that those different definitions of history that we choose to raise higher uh, will have an impact uh, as we look out the next three, four, five, ten years. No, no I, I think you're right. And if I could just sort of uh, come back, Roger, and respond to that, really sort of two two points, really. Your particular point, of course, is of, of the danger uh, uh, and the lethality of, of considering that uh, that geography is, is political destiny um and of course it has a very long and dangerous history i mean don't forget it was the it was the nazi regime who, who declared their need for sort of lebensraum with with all the kind of connotations that that got but i think again to come back to mckinder um you know he got it right but writing it in 1890 he said that the the course of politics is a product of two sets of forces the impelling and the uh, and the guiding, uh, and the impetus is from the past and the history embedded in the people's character and tradition. So you, again, you refer to that, and the present guides the movement by economic wants and uh, geographical opportunities. And statesmen and diplomats succeed and fail pretty much as they recognise the irresistible power of these forces. Now, one of the things that the Johnson government, the United Kingdom, has not recognised, of course, is that by putting a barrier up the Irish Sea, uh, it has destroyed the geographical uh, opportunities that the whole of the United Kingdom uh, should have enjoyed in in leaving the the European Union. Uh, And, of course, it's going to cause an awful lot of economic harm. And the other point I'd make, actually, I would quote uh, an American theologian, Niebuhr, who um, I think is is well regarded in the United States. And in a very, again, forgotten book written in the 1950s, he said that you have to appreciate with any country, there are two elements. There is what he described as a kind of an organic element to it. So it's it's the way in which it's, it's, it's sort of held together um, in various ways. Uh, the forces between that pull it apart and, and bring it together or in balance. And also, there is a kind of a thing that plays on the imagination. And he said that if you look at all countries, there is an element of both. Uh, of course, the proportion uh, varies according to what he described, uh, interestingly enough, as the degree of civilization. So I, I think uh, there you can get, I, I think, a combination of, of Niebuhr and McKinder provides us uh a series of, of propositions or if you like of an analytical template whereby we can judge the folly that has just been foisted upon the, the people of the United Kingdom. Well, we've been exploring today a little bit about the geopolitics of the United Kingdom in, the, in this post-Brexit world and looking back at history and looking at society and geography and thinking forward. And I want to thank Jeff Sloan, an associate professor at the University of Reading and the coordinator in the United Kingdom of the Mackinder Forum for joining us today. Thank you, Jeff. A real pleasure. Thank you, Roger. Always glad. You can stay up to date on the latest geopolitical developments by signing up for our free newsletter. Visit worldview.stratfor.com. That's worldview.stratfor.com. I'm Roger Baker, and thank you for listening.